I don't want us to come to the temptations. My girl, my girl, whoa, 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 song is growing on me. <laughs> welcome back, Rod, and welcome everyone to This Is Comp, Motown style. This Is Comp is a sub-series of Discord and Rhyme where we dive deep into multi-artist compilations, artist by artist, song by song. I got tired of saying various artists. It doesn't roll off the tongue. Too many S's. <laughs> so we're on Twitter and Instagram at Discord Pod. And if you're listening to this on the main feed, you can get these compilation episodes six weeks early by signing up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash Discord Pod. Okay, roll call. Rich Bunnell, Phil Maddox, and Ben Marlin. So we have reached disc three of Motown, the complete number ones, bringing us to the year 1969, which means Nixon's in office. The label is still mostly in Detroit, and Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong have risen to the top of the Hitsville songwriting ranks, as we'll hear in this episode. So we're starting off this disc with tracks one through six, kicking off with Runaway Child, Running Wild by Phil. The Temptations. <laughs> the Temptations. <laughs> get to the chorus and more don't bore us where the hell is the chorus <laughs> i mean i like it mm -hmm. so runaway child running wild was released in january 1969 and was written by norman whitfield and barrett strong and get used to hearing those names as often as you heard holland dozier holland on the last <laughs> couple of discs this hit number one r&b and number six hot 100 beaten by aquarius let the sunshine in by the fifth dimension time of the season by the zombies and proud mary by ccr all of which also weren't at number one that week, which was Dizzy by Tommy Rowe. I think I read last night that that's Hal Blaine on drums, and it's a great performance. Yeah, those drums were actually sampled on the magic number from De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising. Wow. All right. So this song, uh, on the compilation here, we're going to be talking about the single version. The album version is nearly 10 minutes long. What? Yeah. Mm hmm Which is pretty unusual for a Motown track from this era. The single version is still five minutes long, which is plenty long for a Motown single. So rather than attempt any kind of clever edit, this just lops the song off at the beginning of the instrumental section. There's a long instrumental section with a lot of organ solos and guitar solos and all kinds of stuff. The This section was great. I listened to it in preparation for this episode. And I really like it, and I think the song is better for having it, but R&B radio was not going to play a 10-minute-long song. 
So I mm-hmm. get why they cut it. I'm curious what Barry Gordy thought of this song, or if this was just clearly the direction the charts were leaning, and he so he was just like, whatever. I also hear <laughs> that Whitfield, Strong, and The Temptations got a lot of freedom compared to other artists to do what they wanted. Well, I'd imagine, because The Temptations are essentially the house band of Motown. They're everywhere. Mm-hmm. So this song, apparently, when I looked into it, has a reputation from the time for scaring a lot of potential runaway kids into staying home, since the lyrics are basically about a runaway kid finding himself on the street and being terrified and wanting to go back home. I can't confirm that this is all anecdotal, but I can believe it, because the depiction in the lyrics of life on the street are terrifying, at least from the perspective of being a kid lost in the city. It basically sounds like a kiddie version of Stevie Wonder's Living for the City. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. But this is certainly pretty terrifying from the perspective of a kid finding themselves lost in a big city and not knowing what to do or where to go. So in my opinion, this is an incredibly great song, an absolute tour de force. Great vocals, super funky bass line, great arrangement, killer instrumental section, which is sadly missing from the single version. Between its really busy arrangement and its attempt at socially conscious lyrics, it really reminds me of contemporary Sly and the Family Stone, yeah. Which is clearly what they're going for. This sounds a lot like Sly and the Family Stone. And it's to this band's credit that it doesn't actually sound considerably less good than what Sly and the Family Stone were putting out at the time. It's a very solid song. They clearly understand what makes Sly and the Family Stone great and can put their own riff on it and make it good. So one thing is that this was a number one, but like a few of the songs here, I had never heard this track outside of this compilation, which I thought, this is an obviously great song. It should be a staple of the radio. It clearly connected at the time since, you know, it hit number one on the R&B charts and it's on this compilation, but time seems to have pushed it far behind their more ubiquitous hits, your My Girls and your what have you. That's a shame because this might be my favorite Temptation song. Wow. It's a really good one. Well, regarding the Sly and the Family Stone thing, we haven't talked much about the individual Temptations uh, besides the lead singers, but it was Otis Williams, the deep, low voice in the group, uh, at least during this period, who really pushed for them to try out this sound because he heard Sly and the Family Stone and rightfully concluded that they were amazing. <laughs> so, and uh, that's that's what I heard, at least, like that Norman Whitfield was reluctant, but eventually gave in. It's a very obvious attempt to keep up with the times and sound like Sly and the Family Stone. Well, this is the start of the whole psychedelic soul period, a.k.a. like the period where the Temptations get really awesome, at least for me, because uh, the Hitsville USA box set uh, has some really great Temptation songs, but I didn't really see the light on them until Mike lent me their two-disc psychedelic soul compilation, and I realized that I just hadn't finished the story of the Temptations yet. <laughs> yeah, like most people, I kind of just associated with them with their early hits. And I was Mm -hmm. not really familiar with anything beyond those until I got this compilation. And now I am certainly interested in hearing more of them. I mean, their early hits are just so ubiquitous. I mean, even though they they, they probably did similarly on the chart, you know, in the the mid-60s and late-60s, but just oldies radio just completely made it lopsided in favor Mm -hmm. of My Girl and the way you do the things you do, as opposed to Runaway Child running wild. I mean, My Girl, I can't even have a reaction to it anymore. I know it's a great song, but it's so ubiquitous that I just can't react to it. Well, yeah, this is a a solid song in that late period Temptations style. 
uh, from their 1969 album, The Temptations, like, really say something, man. <laughs> the fuzz guitar on the song makes for a great crossover with the other big compilation we've covered, Nuggets, which was just all fuzz guitar on every song. Um, and as usual in the background, I mean, the rhythm's incredible, and Eddie Bongo Brown is just killing it on the bongo drums. His parents were right to name him that, even if it kind of typecasted him career-wise. And I like the attempt at social commentary. And as Phil said, you know, the, the lyrics are effective. You know, Motown was never Bob Dylan in, in that category, but they tried for a while and, and it was admirable. I've always thought that the uh, the part where he goes, I want my mama, sounds a lot like the George Harrison song, Wah Wah, where it goes, Wah Wah. And I mean, I could be pulling that out of nowhere, but I could also point out that George Harrison was not above that kind of thing at that time. Uh, Wawa is also a great song. So this is sort of Cloud 9 Part 2, or you can call it Cloud 10. Uh, but Motown had a lot of Part 2 songs that are still classics years later, because when they were on a roll, it's it's worth hearing everything they were doing. Though the whole, like, I want my mama thing, if you listen to the full-length version of this, the instrumental break actually starts with a recording of a kid repeatedly yelling, I want my mama. Oh, God, that's harrowing. Before it just goes into four minutes of solos, essentially. Okay, we're done with The Temptations for now, but now we're back to Marvin Gaye with Too Busy Thinking About My Baby. Too Busy Thinking About My Baby was released in April 1969, and it was written by Norman Whitfield, Barrett Strong, and Janie Bradford, and actually it was first recorded by The Temptations in 1966. I mean, ah, The Temptations! <laughs> it hit number one R&B and number four Hot 100, held from the top spot by Get Back by The Beatles, Bad Moon Rising by CCR, who never hit number one. Losers. Sorry. And in the top spot, Henry Mancini and his orchestra's love theme from the 1968 Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet. That has just been forgotten, at least radio-wise. I think it's good. I mean, it's Mancini. I just think it's funny that that topped the charts. Yeah. So lyrically, Too Busy Thinking About My Baby is sort of a child of Sam Cooke's hit Wonderful World with the same message that school is a complete waste of your time and love is all you need to make it. Uh, so remember that, kids. The B-side to Too Busy Thinking About My Baby was the bone-chillingly awful song, Wherever I Lay My Hat, That's My Home, which was recorded way back in 1962, and which is actually on this number one's compilation thanks to a deal it made one night at a crossroads outside Detroit. We covered it on a previous episode, though you should be wary about listening to that section because it has kind of a Jumanji thing where once you start playing it, you won't be able to shut it off. <laughs> back to the song. I love it. 
I, I, I just love it. It hits me like a beautiful spring day to the extent that I can remember those here in the Northeast United States in 2020. Um, there's just something refreshing about every second of it. There's the frantic, nearly weightless backing, and it's anchored by an effortlessly simple bass line. It has that ascending melody in the chorus, which is just beautiful. And you mentioned the Andantes before. They they carry a lot of the weight of this song. You know, as great mm-hmm. as Marvin Gaye is, they are they should have a co-billing on it. And yeah, it goes without saying that Marvin Gaye's vocal is superb. And that's a weird turn of phrase because I clearly just wanted to say it and I said it. Uh, he sounds so happy here and so at peace. And, and he does that so expertly because you can't just be happy to communicate happiness through song. You have to be a world-class singer in the prime of your career as Marvin Gaye was in 1969. All in all, this is my second favorite Motown song after Heat Wave by Martha and the Vandellas. It's funky, beautifully performed pop music. Second favorite? Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm eager to see the Ben Motown charts. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the main thing I get out of this song is that uh, is once again that I need to get into Marvin Gaye because I still barely know him and every song I hadn't I haven't heard before from him on this compilation has been amazing. But yeah, apparently in the late 60s, Norman Whitfield pushed Marvin Gaye to sing in kind of a raspier voice similar to David Ruffin or Levi Stubbs, like kind of a tough guy voice in their own words. And you can hear some of that on I Heard It Through the Grapevine. And Marvin Gaye hated it at first, but it eventually just became another tool in his vocal arsenal. And and what I like about this song is that he's in like three different modes here. You can hear him slipping between like Sweet Marvin and Raspy Marvin and Falsetto Marvin. And since this is an older song, I think that's like the one thing that makes this a later 60s Norman Whitfield production, because otherwise it feel, it sounds like one of his earlier songs. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing late 60s about this. It, it could be an early 60s song, except for that vocal and, and the backing. But like the, the song itself is very like my girl, you know, love is wonderful and so on. Nothing edgy. It feels a bit like a jump back, which just in terms of time, not necessarily in terms of quality, that's subjective, obviously. But after that Temptation song, this feels a lot more like standard Motown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is not bad. I mean, this is a Motown compilation. Obviously, we like standard Motown here. <laughs> but this is a good song. Uh, it never blew me away. I just thought it was a standard, high-quality Marvin Gaye song from this period. Although, Rich, you say you were interested in checking out more Marvin Gaye. I will say this about the pre-what's-going-on period of Marvin Gaye. Mm-hmm. It's very... Hits and filler. Oh, yeah, I have no qualms about getting a hits collection. Because I got a box set of all of his pre-what's-going-on work when a local record shop was going out of business, rest in peace, and I (laughs) bought it for very cheap, and all of the non-hits are okay. There's nothing terrible there. There's occasionally something that leaps out at you, but yeah, uh, you're generally fine with a compilation. One thing that jumps out at me at this is... The line about how I'm just a fella with a one-track mind, which the Rolling Stones definitely swiped that to jack into their cover of Just My Imagination when they covered it on their Some Girls album. It never Mm -hmm. occurred to me that that wasn't part of the song, so they just put those lyrics in there? Pretty sure, yeah. (laughs) I need to go back and listen to The Temptations, Just My Imagination again to make sure they didn't, I didn't just miss that, but I'm pretty sure they just kind of pulled that in from this. I never caught that. Okay, let's move on to Junior Walker and the All-Stars. They're back with What Does It Take to Win Your Love, which is in parentheses. Ah, Junior Walker. Somebody once told me about Junior Walker. (laughs) (laughs) Took me a second. 
My God, I hate that song. It's not even particularly Motown. Mm-hmm. It's just a great song and a great performance. So is this the first sax break as chorus song? Because this like beats out Baker Street and Careless Whisper by a long <laughs> shot. I love the sax in Baker Street, but the song is just an excuse to have the sax break. It's a good excuse. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard worse. But What Does It Take to Win Your Love was released in April 1969. It was written by Johnny Bristol, Harvey Fuqua, and Vernon Bullock. It hit number one R&B and number four Hot 100, and this song was held from the top spot by Honky Tonk Women by The Stones, Crystal Blue Persuasion by Tommy James and the Shondells, and there's one for you Breaking Bad fans in the audience, and at number one, In the Year 2525 by Zager and Evans. In the year 2525 If man is still alive It used to really spook me out, I'll give it that. But it, it doesn't really hold up. I mostly know it from references to it on Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> I mean, by the by the end of the song, we're like a thousand years in the future. And it's pretty creepy just what the human race has become and inevitably will become because the song said so. So Junior Walker and the All-Stars were led by saxophonist Junior Walker, birth name Autry DeWalt. Uh, they had a number of hits in the mid-60s uh, that I believe we've covered here. Um, but all those hits had been upbeat stompers like Shotgun and I'm a Roadrunner, which you may also recognize as Roll With It by Stevie Winwood. However, in, <laughs> in 1968, Junior and his band took a chance and recorded this romantic song. Uh, Junior initially didn't want to record it, saying that it wasn't his bag because life really was like Austin Powers back then. But he came around to the song during the recording process. Once it was recorded, the song was actually rejected for single release at one of Motown's quality control meetings. It's somebody messed up there. I'd like to think that at that point, Barry Gordy stood up with a baseball bat and began walking around the conference room table and talking about being part of a team and how we get nowhere unless the team wins. All while Smokey Robinson and Norman Whitfield were sitting and enjoying the speech and thinking about going to a Tigers game sometime until Barry stopped right behind the head of quality control and lifted up the bat. And Anyway, as a result, What Does It Take to Win Your Love was released as Motown's next single. Actually, what happened there was much less violent than what I might have imagined. The song was an album track, but DJs noticed it and they began playing it, and eventually Motown saw the value in releasing it as a single. Ben, I like your quality control vignette, but I actually read an interesting alternate story that might even be real. <laughs> so regarding the vocals on the song, they might not even be Junior Walker. Oh, 
if you go to the Wayback Machine, you can find a website by Bob Dennis, who was a mastering engineer and member and member of Motown's Quality Control Board, actually, like toward the end of his tenure there. Uh, he sadly passed away in 2018, which is why his site is defunct. But he used to share Motown tidbits, both technical and anecdotal. And according to him, and I emphasize him because I can't find this anywhere else. Uh, Barry Gordy wanted to give the song the thumbs up, but Junior Walker himself didn't want it to go on the radio. And they eventually reasoned out that it was because Johnny Bristol actually sang the song wow. and walk and Walker was worried about touring and hitting the high notes. Wouldn't so, someone be able to pick that out though? I mean, that's, that's a fascinating yeah, I don't know. story. It's just, you think someone that's hiding in plain sight, if that's the case. Well, the thing is that he did sing it when he toured it, but he adapted it to, it was to his own vocal range. Like you can, but there's only, well, I actually want to share this cause it's pretty funny, but like there's only one live performance of the song on, um, on YouTube and it's from Letterman from 1985 and it features John Anderson from yes on backing vocals. That's what? Yep. Wow. <laughs> so bizarre they sit down with david letterman after the performance but i still can't quite tell why john anderson is there (laughs) why wouldn't he be (laughs) that's true he's everywhere anyway sorry for the digression but so like uh, I need to emphasize about it, though, one source, and he's not alive, so take it with a huge grain of salt. And it's not even on the internet anymore, so it stopped being true. <laughs> this is an aching, soulful love song. It's slower than Motown usually let itself go, but to amazing effect. Now, Motown was fantastic at expressing love, but it was usually in an upbeat way, with hand claps and two tire hubcaps being slapped together. And the singers would sing, I love him, I love him, I love him. And then the backing singers would sing, yes, it's really true. She loves him, she loves him, she loves him. And then a peppy saxophone solo would go that's just full of love. And it's all amazing and it's why we're covering this compilation. But this is different. It it sort of has a peppy beat with Jack Ashford's persistent tambourine carrying that beat. But mostly it just burns and sweats and aches. The bass line is slow and pulsing and authoritative, and Junior Walker's vocals, if they are Junior Walker, they're not expert, but they're soulful, and they work perfectly here. And his saxophone solo is is sultry. It's definitely an influence on Duke Silver from Parks and Recreation. (laughs) Altogether, it makes for one of my all-time favorite Motown songs. It's not particularly representative of the Motown genre. It's just an exquisite song. See, I had heard Junior Walker didn't sing this, but I heard that was because it was actually Junior Samples. <laughs> That's a little joke for all the Hee Haw fans in the audience. Oh, I was just laughing along because I assumed it was funny. <laughs> and it is. <laughs> now, if you like Hee Haw, that will be very funny. And I know all of our listeners have seen every episode of Hee Haw. <laughs> I prefer Hee Haw the next generation. <laughs> Man, I'm just rolling out the critic references, Phil. <laughs> what have you done to me? I prefer Yahoo. Anyway, this is a good song. I don't have a ton to say about it. It's very pretty. It's a nice arrangement. But it's not the kind of music I generally fall head over heels for. It's the kind of music I listen to and say, this is clearly very good. But I don't have much of a reaction to it beyond that, which is clearly on me. So It is just so strange going from Shotgun to this. I I did not know this song existed. (laughs) Yeah, you wouldn't pick this out as Motown or Junior Walker. 
But let's get to a song that we can very much identify as Motown because it's so, so good. This is The Temptations with I Can't Get Next to You. That is just sex right there. <laughs> I can turn the gray sky blue. I can make it rain whenever I want it to. Can't Get Next to You was released in July 1969 and was written by, you guessed it, Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong. And it topped both the R&B charts for five weeks and the Hot 100 for two weeks, uh, knocking off Sugar Sugar by the Archies. And since that one's not at number one anymore, I'm not going to clip it. <laughs> you are my candy girl. <laughs> and you got me one. I got that for my birthday. <laughs> That was The Simpsons, everyone. (laughs) You can always bet that that's what it is. So this one, the next entry in the The Temptations Really Want to Sound Like Sly Stone series. Once again, I've never heard this on the radio. I don't know if that's common. So uh, let me know, listeners. Am I wrong about these Temptation songs being comparatively obscure? Because I've listened to a lot of classic rock and oldies and Motown radio, and I don't remember ever hearing these two songs. Of the psychedelic soul era, this is the one I've definitely heard the most. Uh, I mean, not not nearly as much as My Girl, but definitely more than Runaway Child Running Wild, which was I've never heard. Right. I would hear these, but it was definitely lopsided. But anyway, this is another spectacular song. A great vocal arrangement, very clearly inspired by Sly and the Family Stone. A great drum break, also clearly inspired by Sly and the Family <laughs> Stone, and an incredibly sophisticated arrangement. It does a ton of things, but it never feels overstuffed, and it gets in and out in under three minutes. So these two songs make me really interested in checking out full-length Temptations LPs from the era, because if the material on the albums from that era is even half as good as the stuff on this compilation, then those albums are probably fantastic. Well, it's probably twice as good because it's twice as long. So I say I never heard this, but that's not entirely true because Al Green did a pretty well-known cover of this that hit number 60 on the Hot 100 and number 11 on the R&B charts that basically radically reinvented it. His version is very good. I mean, what, were you expecting me to say that classic era Al Green was bad? can build a castle from a single grain of sand, yeah. Wow. You see, I can make a ship sail on dry land. 
Yeah, I wanted to make the clip longer, but he he slows down the song so much. It just doesn't match the Temptations original for me, which again, I had not heard till I got this Motown compilation. I'd heard the Al Green version, which again, I don't remember actually hearing on the radio, but I had that ubiquitous Al Green's Greatest Hits compilation where he's not wearing a shirt on the front cover, which I think mm-hmm. every human being had, approximately. <laughs> I think Al Green's albums are worth getting into uh, in general, like Call Me, uh, I'm Still in Love With You, Let's Stay Together. They're all really good. I have called. But anyway, I came at this song kind of bass backwards for that (laughs) reason, because like, since this one is such a gigantic production, the Temptations one, I assumed it had to be like the blown up version of the original Al Green song. I I wasn't thinking fourth dimensionally because uh, (laughs) the Al Green one came out a year later in 1970. (laughs) Great Scott. But yeah, like, <laughs> the Al Green song never made that much of an impression on me. I thought it was another solid Al Green song from the era. And then when I heard this, I just thought, oh, this is great. I just really mm-hmm. prefer the Temptations version. It's a little bit more in the general style of music I like. Yeah, this is a scorching funk song. It, the backing is so hard hitting and raw. Um, all the Temptations get to show off on lead vocals, and Eddie Kendricks, the, the high falsetto guy, in particular stands out. You wouldn't think that his voice would work in this context, but he's just masterful on it. There's that big rah right in the middle of the song, which I believe is a lift from an old Supreme song called When the Love Light Starts Shining in His Eyes, where the four tops come in and make a cameo appearance just to do that same exciting harmonized grunt. But it's okay. Motown is allowed to copy Motown. I particularly appreciate the space in the mix here. Motown could be all about filling every last sonic inch of the track. And if they ran out of instruments to do it with, they would just go out to one of their cars, rip off both side mirrors and bang them together brilliantly on the rhythm track. But there's a lot of open space and silence here in between the the few sounds that you do here. And it makes some of the more effective moments like those devilish piano fills just stand out even more. So yeah, this is an amazing song. Both of these Temptation songs. I feel like I got the jackpot here because a little behind the scenes, we generally divvy up what we're going to talk about, who's going to do the research, etc. We do these (laughs) this is comp things. And I usually get the Temptations because of the (laughs) walk hard thing. (laughs) But these Temptation songs, like, at least to me, these are clearly the two best songs of this set, and really listening to them deep, getting ready for this recording, it really makes me want to check out more of their material from this era, because these songs are so great. Yeah, Norman Whitfield really opened up the Temptation sound. Like, uh, he turned, he made it really panoramic, and my favorite part of that is that, like, on this song, you finally get a sense of all of them as individual vocalists, not just pieces of a harmony in service of whoever the lead singer yep. is on that song. Yeah, uh, it, it almost so it almost reminds me of Wu Tang in a strange way, like the way they like jump in and out and pass the song along to the next vocalist, and all the while you get a sense of their unique personalities. Like I'll, I'll try to remember to link this on Twitter, but you should you should there's a there's a great like live performance video of this song where they're doing like this great minimalist dance routine, and uh, all of their personalities come through, and it's really fun. I haven't seen the clip, but I read in, uh, I have Otis Williams's autobiography and he said that Eddie Kendricks based the dance routine on just a, a weird dance he saw his kids doing. It's really cool. Yeah. And we have a sample. This was sampled by The Temptations later that year <laughs> on their single Psychedelic Shack. 
And since Psychedelic Shack is awesome and did not hit number one, it's time for a Discord and Rhyme bonus track. <laughs> <laughs> Hold, hold it. Listen. Wait, that's just just started the same way. Uh, it's only in one channel, though. Mm. The other channel is the creaky psychedelic shack door opening. <laughs> or fake live noises. Psychedelic Shack! <laughs> Those bass vocals come in on these Temptation songs. They just instantly make me think of You Can Make It If You Try by Sly Stone. Yeah, I love this era of the Temptations. Uh, it took a lot of guts for, for Norman Whitfield to make this kind of music at Motown where no song got the go-ahead for release if it couldn't be slipped into a church's hymnal without the congregation noticing. The rhythm section just cooks here. Uh, Norman Whitfield liked to let the Funk Brothers, that's the, the backing musicians, do their thing and just jam together. And then he'd say, do that, but change that. Or even, hey, listen to this record. Do exactly what the tambourine player is doing on this record. He wasn't mm -hmm. a musical genius like Brian Wilson. He didn't write out charts for, for the players, but he built them bit by bit and he, he would change things. And he got his records to sound exactly the way he wanted them to. And they sounded great. The lyrics here and, and the wild sound effects are a little on the nose. Like, did people go to psychedelic shacks in the 60s? Were those a thing? Or did the guy at Motown in charge of hippie recon just stay in his office and make something up and then pocket his travel allowance? If someone was going to make a documentary about the 60s but only had the money to clear one song, this might be a good one to choose because it's got a little bit of everything. For better or mm -hmm. worse, but I'd say mostly better. Okay, let's move on to a new artist, or are they? This is Baby I'm For Real by The Originals. Baby, baby, you don't understand how much I love you, baby, and how much I want to be your only man, oh, baby. Baby, 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 you don't have to go. Stay a little while longer, baby. I want to talk to you just a little more. Baby, I'm For Real was released in 1969, and that's all I could find, just 1969. Find out the month yourself, gumshoes. Uh, and it topped the R&B charts and hit number 14 on the Hot 100. 
Number one that week was Come Together Something, the double A side by the Beatles, which, sure. Yeah. I'm not going to complain about that. <laughs> Hacks. Uh, the, the originals are a fascinating story, actually, kind of a 20 feet from stardom situation in their own way. Uh, lead singer Freddie Gorman met Barry Gordy on his route as a mail carrier, and Gordy eventually hired him as a staff writer and producer for Motown. Yeah, he actually co-wrote Please, Mr. Postman and was what? the original third member of Lamont Dozier and Brian Holland's songwriting trio, writing a couple non-hits for Mary Wells and the Supremes uh, before they replaced him with Eddie Holland. He's the Pete so. Best of Holland Dozier Holland. Yeah, yeah, I was going to uh, – exactly. Oh. <laughs> to extend the comparison between Holland Dozier Holland and Lennon McCartney, this all happened before the Beatles fired Pete Best. Wow. Yeah, they scooped him. So, uh, without a contract, Garmin had no leverage. Those were the days. Uh, so, he went back to his mail route and eventually became a songwriter for local Motown rival Golden World. He co-wrote the top ten hit Just Like Romeo and Juliet for The Reflections, a song we covered a while back in our Nuggets box set episodes covered by um, Michael and the Messengers. That was a good one. So, in an extremely Mad Men-esque twist, Golden World was eventually absorbed by Motown, <laughs> and Gorman found himself at the label once again. Uh, so this is when the originals come in. So in 1966, Gorman was added to the lineup of a new vocal group, singing bass vocals alongside lead tenor C.P. Spencer, second tenor Hank Dixon, baritone Walter Gaines, and Levi Stubbs' brother Joe Stubbs, but only briefly. He'd already left the group by the time this song came out. Um, and at first, the originals only sang backing vocals, and we've in fact already heard them a couple times in this Motown series on Jimmy Ruffin's What Becomes of the Brokenhearted and Stevie Wonder's For Once in My Life. I think I just called them the male on Dante's, and they're these people have lives, Rich. Come on. <laughs> the originals released a few occasional singles, but didn't hit the charts until Marvin and Anna Gordy Gay wrote two lovely songs for them, The Bells and Baby I'm For Real. Uh, Gay also produced this song and wisely arranged it as an original's posse cut, giving each member a verse, just like... I can't get next to you <laughs> in every way. Uh, he also sings backing vocals throughout the song because who on earth is going to turn down that offer? <laughs> so that's an interesting story about how all this came to be. The song is fine. <laughs> it's one of those songs where I listen to it and I just think, this is well put together. It's very well constructed. All the vocals are good. The arrangement is good. There's nothing wrong here. Also, I don't care. <laughs> well, it's funny to me how throwbacky it is compared with all of the just some of the other songs on this collection, or especially the Temptation songs that just like go in bold new directions. And here you have like a very like nostalgic doo-wop song. This just feels like a generic Motown song. The opening kind of falsetto-y bit almost makes me think of Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention doing their kind of faux doo-wop thing. <laughs> it's just so directly on the nose that by this time it almost feels like a send-up because it's so unapologetically what it is and nobody was really doing that anymore but most of what makes this song interesting at all is the story and just how ludicrously out of time it is compared to everything else that was going on at the same time as a song i mean what am i supposed to say it's nice that's about all i got yeah. It's original. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah, and we've talked about this with other songs, but in all my years of oldies radio listening, during which I've become an oldie myself, I've never heard this song before. It's completely new to me. And I don't know if I was missing much. It, it's not distinctively sung. It doesn't have much of a melody. 
It's nice, though. I'll go with Phil there. The production is lush and sweet, and it sort of points the way towards Philly soul in the 70s with uh, Gamble. Sorry, with Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff and all the music they made. But it's not at all memorable. Don't let the charts fool you here. This is not a number one song. The thing with Motown is until they started branching out into some ill-advised country songs that were Hmm. pretty clunky, there was a certain amount of taste that you were guaranteed to get with anything Motown deemed to release as a single. This is very pleasant and tasteful. I can't imagine someone hearing this just going, ugh, this is awful. Right. But at the same time, there's no excitement here. It's very workmanlike. Listening to these songs, I was using my 1969 Motown singles collection, and there's at least one single in there that's one of the, that, that genre of awful comedy songs that, that came up around this time where like they would do some dialogue and ask a question and then play a clip of a, a recent hit as sort of a comedic answer. Ah, yes, and the, the Dickie Goodman thing. <laughs> yeah, and there's a whole A side and B side that's just that shtick, and it's hard to believe that that was Motown. It's no Cassius Love versus Sonny Wilson. <laughs> that that makes Cassius Love versus Sonny Wilson sound like art. I have a Jerry Lee Lewis singles compilation, and they did a song in that style, or rather, they released a song in that style that explicitly mentions Jerry Lee Lewis marrying his cousin. <laughs> and it was released as an official Jerry Lee Lewis single. Wow. It's very strange. <laughs> and don't forget his 13-year-old cousin. Yes. Times were different. <laughs> I think we're done with the originals. Though <laughs> yeah, they're actually okay. going to come though they're actually going to come back in a couple of discs during the disco era. I can't wait. <laughs> so let's move on to Diana Ross and the Supremes with with Someday We'll Be Together. Who? Someday We'll Be Together was released in November 1969 and topped both the R&B charts and the Hot 100. Uh, And this is actually the final Supremes number one hit under any name and also the final number one hit of the 60s. Wow. The 70s are going to be great, guys. (laughs) Someday We'll Be Together was supposed to be the first solo Diana Ross single, but instead it ended up being the final fake Diana Ross and the Supremes single. But wait, since this is the Supremes, it's even more complicated than that. (laughs) This was actually originally written in 1961 by Johnny Bristol Jackie Beaver is in Harvey Fuqua, the first two of whom released it on um, on the Tri-Fi label under the name Johnny and Jackie to moderate success in the Midwest before Tri-Fi was swallowed up by Motown. 
<laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> so Johnny Bristol had already been preparing an updated instrumental track of his old single with the Funk Brothers and the Detroit Symphony Orchestra with the intent of using it as a backing track for Junior Walker and the All-Stars, who were now doing smooth music. Uh, Barry Gordy heard it and decided that it would instead make a great solo debut single for Diana Ross, so they brought her in to sing. So, so this one has an interesting story. Uh, Bristol was, an ins- was, a, was supposedly initially unable to get the right vocal performance out of Diana Ross, who was probably nervous about her big solo debut, or I don't know, who, who knows. Uh, so for one take, he acted as her hype man, adding harmonies and words of encouragement, never intending for his vocals to be recorded. Uh, so, of course, they did get recorded oh, because that's what happens in stories like this. And upon hearing is. it, yeah, and upon hearing it, everyone agreed it was exactly the, t- the touch the song needed. And Barry Gordy was so moved by the final recording, he decided to pretend that it was the final Diana Ross and the Supreme single instead. <laughs> what a heart of gold. Are the other two Supremes on this? No, they're not. This is literally a track that was intended for Junior Walker and the All-Stars with Diana Ross singing on it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this is a mature and wizened vocal from Diana Ross, and it's appropriate for being her last big Supreme single. She's wistful and, and contemplative here. But also don't be fooled. This isn't a song by a dreamer. The choruses are forceful. You know, she says, someday we'll be together. And it's almost like whether you realize it or not, dude, or even whether you like it or not. The more subtle production style means the song isn't as much of a banger as previous Supreme songs. But that just means Motown was changing and maturing. And it points towards the more intricate production style that Ashford and Simpson were exploring in their corner of Motown and that they'd be using on Diana Ross songs pretty soon. And it still does bang in its own bittersweet way. It's got a thumping beat, which gets more and more forceful as the song goes on until it could almost be mistaken for an earlier, peppier Supreme song. It's deceptively soft in the beginning. And then just the more it goes on, they layer on instruments and it's just punchy by the end. I love that dissonant violin riff that opens the song. So, yeah, this is great. It's it's one for all time, like almost all the songs that, that we're covering in this first 10 years of Motown. I'm not sure I'd want every Supreme song to sound like this, but as a one-off, it's it's so memorable. So this one, I don't have a ton to say about it other than it's a good song. <laughs> I think Ben covered it very nicely. Just thinking about the story Rich told, it really just makes me think about this kind of thing happening at labels and just how does this happen at all anymore? Is there any modern analog to like a label that just passes things around and assigns singers and jumbles everything around like this? You don't hear too much of it post the 60s. The latest I remember hearing about it being a common thing was like the disco era. But that's just a thing I find interesting about this era, just the way labels would just shuffle everything around because you saw it at Motown you saw it with Phil's records with Phil Spector you saw it to a certain extent at Stax and then it just kind of after this era the label as the artist essentially kind of went away it's really interesting that's sort of like makes me think of the golden age of Hollywood where just the the studio system where the actors were almost just like interchangeable and Mm -hmm. and the studios just kind of determined how everything was going to go Because this, it's just, is it the Supremes? Is it Diana Ross? Is it Junior Samples? They just took, not Junior Samples. I'm still thinking about Hee Haw. Uh, Junior Walker. 
and just decided, let's put this element here and that element here and rearrange it and give it to this artist and credit it as this. And that's what we have determined will be the most commercially successful combination. (laughs) It's completely soulless, but it did work here because the song is really good and it was a number one hit. So clearly it worked commercially. You just don't hear stories like that anymore. Yeah. Now you have like beat libraries and like a single producer in charge of like a snare drum on a song. (laughs) So that's its own form of interchangeable parts. Also, if that opening riff of the song sounds familiar to you 90s kids, it's because Janet Jackson sampled it on her 1993 banger, If. Uh, Janet, it's been too long. She bangs. She moves. <laughs> yeah, what I love about that riff is, like, I don't really, I mean, it's a good riff in the Supreme song. I like it. But, like, uh, just just by recontextualizing it, Jam and Lewis and Janet Jackson turn it into, like, demented carnival music. <laughs> I love that song. That's an amazing song. And it, it's one of my favorite samples uh, just because the song doesn't need it. I mean, If is just an incredible song, even if you took that out. And so the sample is just icing on the cake. They're not, mm-hmm. it's not a crutch. They're not relying on it. It's just there for amazing decoration. It's the breakdown. Yeah. I think I listen to more electronic music than you. Anyway. Yeah, as in any. We're talking about Klaus Schultz and Tangerine Dream, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> electronic music is one genre. I should have, I should have pointed that out. <laughs> anyway, we were clearly done with this set of songs. That concludes this set. I'm glad to be back in Motown, but for now, roll credits. What do you call this record with all these songs? This is comp. Yeah, yeah. This is comp. Yeah, yeah. This is comp. Yeah, yeah. This is. Thank you for listening to This Is Comp, a subsidiary of the Discord and Rhyme podcast. The opening theme music for this special Motown series is the Motown song by Rod Stewart featuring The Temptations, at least until he finds out that we're using it. The closing (laughs) theme is performed by Kenneth Crayley and is based on This Is Pop by XTC, written by Andy Partridge, with new lyrics by Adam Smith of The Hector Collectors. You can hear Kenneth's music at Kenneth Crayley, that's K-R-A-Y-L-I-E, dot bandcamp.com, and his band Casinos at casinos.bandcamp.com, as well as The Hector Collectors music at The Hector Collectors, you guessed it, dot bandcamp.com. We'll be back with more Motown in two weeks, and in the meantime, be ever wonderful.